Book Four, Chapter Four, Amelia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Amelia by Henry Fielding, Book Four, Chapter Four, in which Amelia appears in no unamiable light. Amelia, with the assistance of a little girl who was their only servant, had dressed her dinner, and she had likewise dressed herself as neat as any lady who had a regular set of servants could have done, when Booth returned and brought with him his friend James, whom he had met with in the park, and who, as Booth resolutely refused to dine away from his wife to whom he had promised to return, had invited himself to dine with him. Amelia had none of that paltry pride which possesses so many of her sex, and which disconcerts their tempers, and gives them the air and looks of furies, if their husbands bring in an unexpected guest, without giving them timely warning to provide a sacrifice to their own vanity. Amelia received her husband's friend with the utmost complacence and good humour. She made, indeed, some apology for the homeliness of her dinner, but it was politely turned as a compliment to Mr. James' friendship, which could carry him where he was sure of being so ill-entertained, and not gave the least hint of how magnificently she would have provided, had she expected the favour of so much good company, a phrase which is generally meant to contain not only an apology for the lady of the house, but a tacit satire on her guests for their intrusion, and is at least a strong insinuation that they are not welcome." Amelia failed not to inquire very earnestly after her old friend Mrs. James, formerly Miss Bath, and was very sorry to find that she was not in town. The truth was, as James had married out of a violent liking of or appetite to her person, possession had surfeited him, and he was not grown so heartily tired of his wife that she had very little of his company. She was forced, therefore, to content herself with being the mistress of a large house and equipage in the country ten months of the year by herself. The other two he indulged her with the diversions of the town. But then, though they lodged under the same roof, she had little more of her husband's society than if they had been one hundred miles apart. With all this, as she was a woman of calm passions, she made herself contented, for she had never had any violent affection for James. The match was one of the prudent kind, and to her advantage, for his fortune, by the death of an uncle, was become very considerable, and she had gained everything by the bargain but a husband, which her constitution suffered her to be very well satisfied without. When Amelia, after dinner, retired to her children, James began to talk to his friend concerning his affairs. He advised Booth very earnestly to think of getting again into the army, in which he himself had met with such success that he had obtained the command of a regiment to which his brother-in-law was lieutenant-colonel. These preferments they both owed to the favour of fortune only, for though there was no objection to either of their military characters, yet neither of them had any extraordinary desert, and if merit in the service was sufficient recommendation, Booth, who had been twice wounded in the siege, seemed to have the fairest pretensions, but he remained a poor half-pay lieutenant, and the others were, as we have said, one of them a lieutenant-colonel, and the other had a regiment. Such rises we often see in life, without being able to give any satisfactory account of the means, 
and therefore ascribe them to the good fortune of the person. Both Colonel James and his brother-in-law were members of the Parliament, for as the uncle of the former had left him, together with his estate, an almost certain interest in a borough, so he chose to confer this favour on Colonel Bath, a circumstance which would have been highly immaterial to mention here, but as it serves to set forth the goodness of James, who endeavoured to make up in kindness to the family what he wanted in fondness for his wife. Colonel James then endeavoured all in his power to persuade Booth to think again of a military life, and very kindly offered him his interest, towards obtaining him a company in the regiment under his command. Booth must have been a madman, in his present circumstances, to have hesitated one moment at accepting such an offer, and he well knew Amelia, notwithstanding her aversion to the army, was much too wise to make the least scruple of giving her consent, nor was he, as it appeared afterwards, mistaken in his opinion of his wife's understanding, for she made not the least objection when it was communicated to her, but contented herself with an express stipulation that wherever he was commanded to go, for the regiment was now abroad, she would accompany him. Booth, therefore, accepted his friend's proposal with a profusion of acknowledgments, and it was agreed that Booth should draw up a memorial of his pretensions, which Colonel James undertook to present to some man of power, and to back it with all the force he had. Nor did the friendship of the Colonel stop here. "'You will excuse me, dear Booth,' said he, "'if after what you have told me,' for he had been very explicit in revealing his affairs to him, I suspect you must want money at this time. If that be the case, as I am certain it must be, I have fifty pieces at your service. This generosity brought the tears into Booth's eyes, and he at length confessed that he had not five guineas in the house, upon which James gave him a bank bill for twenty pounds, and said he would give him thirty more the next time he saw him. Thus did this generous colonel, for generous he really was to the highest degree, restore peace and comfort to this little family, and by this act of beneficence make two of the worthiest people two of the happiest that evening. Here, reader, give me leave to stop a minute, to lament that so few are to be found of this benign disposition, that while wantonness, vanity, avarice, and ambition are every day rioting and triumphing in the follies and weakness the ruin and desolation of mankind, scarce one man in a thousand is capable of tasting the happiness of others. Nay, give me leave to wonder, that pride, which is constantly struggling, and often imposing on itself, to gain some little preeminence, should so seldom hint to us the only certain as well as laudable way of setting ourselves above another man, and that is, by becoming his benefactor." End of Book 4, Chapter 4